She is a highly sought-after addiction therapist and life and corporate coach who specializes in harm reduction and utilizes holistic approaches to treat addiction, as well as mental conditions holding her clients back from reaching their full potential. She has over 20 years experience working with different types of addictions, and she's a number one best-selling author on Amazon. Firecrackers, please welcome Dr. Callie Estes, PhD. Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. You're based in Miami, which is, I always hear people say, it's the capital city of Latin America. And every time I go there, I hear people talking in Spanish all the time. Do you speak Spanish? I don't. I have been here 12 years and I keep trying to learn it. But because I'm bilingual in some French, I keep getting my words all screwed up and I make no sense when I talk. (laughs) I moved here in 2010. Mm-hmm. And the very first restaurant I went to in Little Havana had no English on the menu. Wow. And I couldn't read it. I knew what pollo was. All I knew. So I'm looking for pollo. I'm like, that's chicken. What, what's with it? I don't know. Pollo. <laughs> and it was really cool because I had no idea what I was eating. And it was so good that the Cuban food down here is so good. And it's so fresh. And it's so different. And you can't get that anywhere else in the country. Yeah. They try to keep it very close to the flavors, the actual flavors in Cuba or any other Latin American or South American country for that matter, which I find mm-hmm. it's like, you know, they keep trying to keep their culture alive in a, in a country like the U.S. is a huge melting pot, of course. It's a very big country. Where are you originally from, by the way? Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Okay. So East Coast, but way up north. Way north. Yep. So you have a PhD. You are mm-hmm. an addiction therapist, and yeah. you treat yep. people that have drug addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Uh, you know, and I, that for me is just really fascinating as a subject. So, I'd really like to hear you um, talk to me about what your experience has been with your career. Sure. So, I started off wanting to be an FBI agent. I never wanted to work in addiction. And I did my internship for my undergraduate in a male prison called uh, SDI Rockfield. And it's up near Penn State University. And when I did my internship, I wanted to work with the crazy guys, you know, the the murderers and the psychopaths. And my dean, the guy that, you know, ran the prison, the dean of prison, said, you can't do that. You're female. I'm going to put you with the drug addicts. And I thought, this is going to be so boring. And it wasn't. And my mentor ended up being an ex-CIA agent. So he taught me body language. He taught me how to read somebody without asking them to answer you verbally. You can ask a question and your body will answer yes or no, you know, the truth, whether or not you speak it. So I learned body language. And after I learned body language, I went on to try my hand at working with, you know, drug addicted people. And my first job was in a nonprofit for prostitute women with kids. So me, who doesn't care for children, doesn't want children, that was my first job. And each of the women, there were 12 women, each woman had four children. 
in the unit. Wow. So it was crazy. It was loud. And I knew right away, I was like, okay, I don't want to work with women and I don't want to work with kids. Um, so from there, I kind of started working in different rehabs and working with different people and honing my skill. And then I went back to school for my master's and I got it in criminal justice and addiction. And I thought, you know, I'll do prison population. And then I learned there was really no money in that and it was high stress and a lot of rules. So long story short, I went on and learned like fitness and yoga and how to do all this extra stuff. And then I went into private practice and I work specifically, I prefer to work with men, narcissistic men is my specialty, but I also work with women and I do a combination of everything. I cover food, I cover nutrition, I cover supplements for their brain and amino acids. I have the first product line specifically for the addicted brain. We just launched last uh, Monday on how to heal the brain from the inside out. And I've made my practice very holistic and I've done very well doing that because it's not a market, at least in the US, that's too big. It seems like a lot of people in the US are, are very old school. They go to a meeting and then they you know, kind of tough it out and that's pretty much all they're doing. They're not doing any of the holistic stuff. So that's sort of what I've gravitated towards. That's really fascinating. And um, by the way, congratulations on the launch of your products. Thank That's you. very exciting. Um, I guess, I mean, I've, I've always wondered what is it that leads people to become addicted to anything? What have you found through your research? Well, it's, it's interesting because what I say is your addiction is not your problem. It's your solution to a problem. What's your problem? So instead of you know, you, you have a stressful day, you're irritated, you're frustrated, you have choices. You can go to the gym, take a boxing class, right? Or you could sit at home, have a glass of wine, have another glass of wine, have five more glasses of wine and get drunk. You have a choice. Why do some people gravitate towards alcohol and some people have maybe a healthier vice? What goes back to childhood? It goes back to the things you learned in childhood and why those things are acceptable. So for example, my mother is a food addict. When I was growing up, she would come down in the middle of the night, grab me, and I remember being four or five years old, being drugged to the kitchen, and we would eat cake at midnight because she was stressed out. And we wouldn't have a piece of cake. We would eat the entire cake. So I learned growing up, when you're stressed, you eat cake. When you're happy, you eat cake. Birthdays and weddings and whatnot. When you're frustrated, you eat cake. Cake is the solution to every emotion you have. And as a child, you don't realize that cake's addictive. It's sugar. Sugar is very addictive. So I grew up addicted to sugar. And when I was 23, I was in college. And I'll never forget, Thursday night is ladies' night. And we would all go out. And I was always the fat friend. I was always the friend who never picked a guy up. I was overweight. And I would always come home alone. And I came home one night. And I was sitting on the floor. And I remember eating cake with my hands. And I was crying. And I was so upset. And there's cake on me and cake on the wall and cake on the dog. And my roommate walked in and she goes, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing. Isn't this what everybody does? And she looked at me and she goes, no, that's not healthy. And I had no idea that was my coping mechanism. So I ended up going to the counselor who back then said, well, you know, you don't have an eating disorder because you're not throwing up and you're not restricting. So you're just fat. So he sent me to the fat doctor who put me on diet pills. And I got addicted to diet pills within 90 days. I dropped 70 pounds. I thought I looked awesome. 
I could eat all the cake in the world. I had tons of energy. It was awesome. About two years later, I started having heart pain and I ended up in the ER. And of course, the doctor says, you know, what are you taking? And I say nothing and go about my business. Well, about a month later, I had heart pain again. I went back to the ER and I was 23. And that doctor said to me, you're going to die. That's just point blank. You've got six months to go if you continue down this path. And he said, you have to come off the diet pills. You have to deal with the eating problem. You have to straighten it out. So I was studying addiction at the time. And I started thinking, I wonder if I'm addicted to diet pills. If This is my solution. So I started studying it. I thought, you know, I am addicted. I'm physically addicted to diet pills. But emotionally, I'm addicted to sugar. And it was hard to come off the diet pills physically. But it was even more hard to kick the sugar because that was my emotional security blanket. Once I learned I didn't need it and I started to feel better, that's when things changed. And for me, I stopped doing all that stuff when I learned yoga because I learned how to breathe and I learned that's where your stress goes. So every time you're having a bad day, if you're unhappy or you're sad, you do yoga instead of eating. And I started to switch a good habit for a bad habit. And that became my coping skill, which then turned into the gym. If I'm having a bad day, I go to the gym. I'm having a good day, I go to the gym. The gym is basically my solution now to my problem, to my bad day, as opposed to gravitating towards the sugar or the diet pills or anything in that vein. And that's sort of how you work with a client that's struggling with a coping skill to learn how to find a better coping skill as opposed to the one that they're utilizing. So it's sort of like like changing one addiction, like a bad addiction for a good addiction, just to put it in like really lame terms. Yeah, sort of like that. Yeah, because there, I mean, if you're going to the gym seven hours a day, that becomes a bad addiction. But that's a lot better than eating sugar and taking diet pills or drinking a whole bunch of wine. So you have to learn, what can I do to handle the stress or handle how I feel without getting too deep into a bad, you know, a bad space. And I teach my clients, you know, it's, it's not, your addiction is not your problem. It's your solution to your problem. What's your problem? I want to know what's causing you to do that bad thing. And it can be anything. It can be cocaine. I'm in Miami. So the drugs of choice are alcohol, cocaine, and women. That's the thing down here meaning they're doing cocaine, they're going on a yacht, there's strippers, there's escorts. It's very open. And if you do that once in a while, it's not a big deal. But if you find yourself every weekend doing that, it's a problem. So what causes that problem? What causes you to engage in that behavior? And that's what I'm, I'm in the business of behavioral analysis, trying to figure out what you do, why you do it, and give you better coping skills. And it can be anything. I have clients that Amazon Prime is the addiction. Every time they feel bad, they grab their phone, they're shopping. They're buying shoes, they're buying dresses. I have one that she's so stressed out, she buys toilet paper in bulk online because she's like, well, it's a a thing we need. Okay, yes, you need toilet paper, but you don't need $3,000 worth of toilet paper. But in her mind, it's justified. Wow. What I'm understanding, because I'm just really, honestly, this is a very interesting subject. So... You help them cope with this, um, and you mentioned already that you do it through a holistic approach. So you have the yoga, you have your supplements now that you just launched, you have therapy, I imagine, that it's also part of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so typically, 
that would be like the process that they would have to take. They start with you on therapy, you find what it is that is causing the actual problem and then it's kind of like treating that problem and helping them change a bad addiction for a quote unquote good addiction. Right. So we figure out why they're doing the bad behavior and it can be any bad behavior. It could be somebody who plays on Facebook four hours a night. That's a bad behavior because it starts to affect your life. So we look at it like any addiction is something that starts to cause problems. For example, if you're missing work because you're drinking or doing drugs or, I don't know, gaming, you know, playing Call of Duty till three o'clock in the morning or binge watching Netflix and you can't get out of bed because you've been up all night watching, you know, a season of whatever show, that is affecting your job. That's affecting your sleep. If you have a significant other that says you're not emotionally present, we're watching a movie and you're playing on your phone. Or we're watching a movie and you've done so much heroin, you can't keep your eyes open. Now it's affecting your relationship. That's when it becomes a problem. So if it's affecting your work, it's affecting your relationship, other people are noticing that you're spending more time on this activity than you know, having human relationships and going out and having fun, then you have an addiction. And that's when it's detrimental. Now, Sometimes your addiction can appear to be a good addiction, but become a bad addiction. For example, I have a client who his addiction is the Spartan races and the mutter races where you train and train and train and you fly to wherever the race is and you, you do this real intensive workout race to win a medal. That sounds great. It's a healthy addiction, except he missed his son's high school graduation and he missed his daughter's wedding because there was a Spartan race he wanted to be in. That became an unhealthy addiction. So even though it's exercise and it's something he's passionate about and it sounds like fun, he used too much of it and he lost his daughter and his son in the process. So those are things we have to investigate and take a look at and see if we can fix. So the addiction would be defined as that thing that would keep you from that relationship with your family or all your friends or going to work or if it doesn't interfere, then it's not considered an addiction? Exactly. It can, it can be, if it's not affecting your life, then we call, your, we call you functioning, right? If it's not affecting your life, you're a functioning alcoholic or you're a functioning addict. You may or may not want to change those things about yourself if they're not a problem. And what I mean by that is, let's say you go out with your girlfriends, right? And you go to a bar and you have dinner and you have cocktails. Let's say you have six women. There's always one woman who says, you know what, I'm not going to drink at all because I really don't want to, or I don't like alcohol or what have you. Then you have one or two women that might have a cocktail and a glass of wine with dinner and then dessert. So they might have two drinks, that's average. But there's usually one person in the bunch that will have two or three cocktails, a wine or two with dinner, and then another cocktail or two and maybe stay afterwards. And as the other women leave, she's still there. That may or may not be a problem. If it's a Friday night and she's blowing off steam from, from the week, it's not a problem. But if it's every Friday night and then it's every Saturday night, now it's starting to become an addiction. Now it's starting to be too much time spent at that activity. And that's when we start to see relationships fall apart. We see risky behavior. For women, it could be picking up partners they don't know anything about and having random sex with them without asking questions or having unprotected sex. For men, 
it could be cheating on your wife or getting, you know, an escort service or something like that, or, you know, looking at porn online. It can be anything. And if it starts to get out of hand, that's when people call me and they say, okay, I need, I need some help with this issue specifically. I was about to ask you, uh, what is it that people, that makes people contact you or somebody like you to say, I'm addicted, I have a problem. What is the turning point usually like? Well, first you have to realize whatever this thing is, it's consuming your time. And you have to say, I don't want to spend that much time on this thing, whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, sex, shopping. Once you realize that, then it becomes, okay, how do we get you out of that situation? How do we figure out why you're doing it? First of all, you got to get to the root cause of why you're engaging in this behavior. And it's pretty simple. Generally, it's one of two things. People who do upper drugs like uh, cocaine, diet pills, methamphetamine, anything like that, caffeine, those people like to have fun. They're bored, generally. Um, Sex addiction falls in that category as well. Then you have people that try to numb out, meaning they don't like their life. They don't like their job. They don't like where they live. They don't like their spouse. They're frustrated. Maybe they came from a family that said, you have to be a doctor, and they don't want to be a doctor. Maybe they want to be, I don't know, an artist, but they do what they're told, and they're unhappy. Those people want to numb out. And they choose drugs like heroin, dilaudid, opiates, Percocet, Vicodin, benzos like Xanax. Uh, They charge the downer drugs, alcohol, sugar. They're numbing out that way, which makes them not have to think about their life. So you have one of two categories. And then occasionally you get the crazy person that does everything. And they say, I don't care what it is. I just want to do a lot of it. That's usually because they like to party, but they have trauma. So once you put them in a category you can sit them down and say, okay, how'd you get here? Tell me about your life. Tell me about growing up. Was there trauma? You know, why are you reaching for this specific thing? So in my household, food was acceptable. Drinking was not. You would never find alcohol in my house, but you would find cake, cookies, candy, you know, hidden junk food. My mom had bags of stuff she hid. That was normal, but you would never find wine. So I didn't know until I was a teenager that anybody even drank wine with dinner because that wasn't a thing. And then I went to a friend's house and I had wine glasses out and they had wine with dinner. And I said, well, you know, what does this mean? And she said, we have wine with dinner. And I was like, I'm a teenager, I'm 15. And she goes, that's okay. In my house, we have wine with dinner. And in my house, you don't even have wine. So part of it is culture. And part of it is, is what did you do as a, you know, a child? What was okay? And then how did you find out about this activity? You know, did your friends introduce this drug or alcohol? Did your mom or dad introduce it? Was mom or dad an addict or an alcoholic? How did you learn about this type of behavior? And then you have to disassociate that with bad stuff. And you have to really, it's almost reprogramming the brain into understanding that those bad things are not happening now. So now if I'm upset, I don't eat sugar because I'm not a child anymore. I don't need to. I need to have a better behavior. So it's teaching somebody all of this stuff in about a three-month window so it's pretty fast, it's pretty intense on how to change their life and how to move forward in a positive direction. You're listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. Now I have to ask something because it just mm-hmm. came to me. 
you've been doing this for how long now? 25 years. 25 years. Has any, has in any way what you do influenced your choice to be child-free? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I wanted to be child-free when I was 14. And I, I come from divorced parents, very dysfunctional, very violent childhood. And I watched my mom struggle as a single mom to feed two kids on a $13 an hour job. And I said, I don't want to do that, number one. But number two, I had friends in high school that got pregnant. And I thought to myself, for the rest of your life, you can't do anything. You're 17 years old with a baby. Like, what are you going to do? You can't. You're stuck. So I didn't want to be stuck. And then I also noticed how much money it took to raise a child. And I thought to myself, you know, I value sleep and I value travel. And I really don't want to give up my livelihood and my fun and my life to do that. And when I was 14, I said to my mom, I'm not having children. And she laughed. And of course, she said, you know, you'll make grandbabies. It's what we do. And I thought to myself, we, I don't want to be like you. And that's when I knew I couldn't have children because I didn't want that lifestyle. And I was very vocal about it. And I didn't get married till I was 34 because in my, in my mind, I didn't need a husband either. When I was ready, I would take a husband. And my mother, she kept saying, well, you must be a lesbian because you're not married. And I said, I don't want to be married. I don't need a husband. I'm financially independent. I have my own apartment, my own car, I pay my own bills. What do I need a husband for? And she kept saying, well, you need to get married and make kids and all this stuff. So I would go on dates at 34 and I'd sit down and I would say, before we have dinner, I want you to know I don't cook, I don't clean, and I don't make babies. I'm a career woman. And I would, you know, the date would stop right there because every guy wanted kids. And finally, I met my husband and he said, really? And he goes, that would be fantastic because I cook, I clean, and I already have two kids and really don't want any more. And I went, what? And he said, yeah. And I said, so you're okay with traveling and having a good time and having a career? And he goes, I'm a musician. I will always be broke and I will always want to sit by the pool at two o'clock on a Tuesday. If you're okay with me doing that, then I'm okay with it. And we've been together ever since. So it wasn't so much my career. It was more I inherently knew I didn't want that lifestyle. That sounds, I mean, <laughs> I, I just, when you were saying like, sit down and, I'm, and you're like, I don't cook, I don't clean and I don't make babies. That's me. That's, that's all me. <laughs> I'm going, yeah. I think it's so important to just also be like very straightforward from day one when you meet somebody, because it has been my experience as well in dating men that most of them, they want children. And when I tell them, oh, I really don't want kids, they're like, you say that now, you change your mind. And I'm like, no, not yeah. really. I actually got sterilized last year. So I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's tough. I remember when I was in my late 20s, I was 28. And I had thought I found the guy I was going to marry. And he, you know, he was very nice and he was very well off and he owned a couple pieces of property and a really good job, a good bank account. Everything on the surface seemed perfect. And then one day he put his arms around me and he said, I cannot wait to see you big and fat with a pregnant belly. And I looked at him and I said, what? And he said it again. And I said, I told you I didn't want kids. And he goes, yeah, but you know, you'll change your mind. And I broke up with him the next day. And my mother called and she's like, that's the perfect guy. He's, you know, he's financially safe. He's got money. 
He's got apartments. He knows his career. And I said, I don't care. He wants kids. And she goes, well, give him one or two. And I'm like, listen, I would rather have my own credit card, my own job, and be able to come and go as I please. I don't want to be tethered to some guy because he has a credit card. And then I have a kid. And then he cheats on me with the secretary. And now I have a kid. What am I going to, you know, forget it. I don't want that lifestyle. Yeah. No, so, I, com- I completely understand. Like I also had, a, I was in a relationship similar to that. Mm-hmm. Broke up. My mom, she, she was like, oh, but he was such a nice guy. And I was like, mom, you know, it's just, it wasn't just going to happen because he's boring. <laughs> he wants yeah. the boring life. Like he's very nice, but he's boring. Yeah. So I, I know I completely understand. So what is it that you like to do now with all that freedom and your independence? Now, of course you have your husband, but you know, the, the cool thing about being child-free is that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And I would exactly. like to know what it is that you like to do whenever you like, whenever you want to do it. Number one is travel. If, if it's Thursday and I, and I go, you know what, let's just hop on a plane and go to the Bahamas. We can do it. I don't have to deal with childcare and school and homework. I can just book a plane flight and go. And literally call the dog walker and say, come on over and take care of the dogs. Or if I want to take the dogs with me, I can throw them in the car and go on a road trip. I can do all of that without worrying about anybody else or, you know, school breaks and whatnot. And I also have being child-free, I have more money to do the things I want to do. And I look at my sister, we're six years apart. I'm older. She has two kids. She has an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old, or now 11. And it's always, we have to budget for that. We have to budget for this. No, you can't have this. No, you can't have that. And I mean, there he has a great job. He's making six figures, but they're still budgeting. And I said, you know, I don't have to do that because I don't have that extra two kids to worry about, and two college funds and, you know, two proms and two weddings and I just, two cars. I don't have any of that. So it's just, it's just nice to be able to say, you know, I can do what I want. If I don't feel like getting out of bed till 10 o'clock, I can do that. And she's up at 5.30 to get kids up and lunches packed and, you know, school clothes dressed and walk them to school. And I'm sleeping in. And I'll call her around 9.30, 10 o'clock. And she'll be like, oh, you're just getting out of bed? Yes, I'm just getting out of bed. And she's like, I hate you. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not really the life that I want either. And I think it's important. Like, the one thing that I, I think is very important is for women to, you know, women who are listening to this podcast who are maybe undecided, it's not really about, you know, one being a good life and the other one being the bad. It's just about, you know, the choice that you make, whatever you feel more comfortable with. It's not, you know, I'm going to have kids because that's what it's expected from me. You know, if you want to have kids, have them. But if you want to live a free life, then don't have kids. Because yeah, and, and, and yeah, I would say to your listeners, be sure before you commit, because it's not, it's not like you can buy a, it. It's not a car, you know, you can go buy a fancy car. And if you don't like it, take it back, get a different car. You can't do that with a child. So it's going to be an 18 or more year commitment. So if you're undecided, don't do it until you're sure you want it because it's an all in process. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, And you also mentioned that your husband has two kids from a previous marriage. Is that correct? Yeah, he has, um, he's a son that's 26 now. That's from his first wife. And he has has a 16-year-old from his second wife. And he wasn't involved in the second child, and I wasn't either. 
but I had bits and pieces of the first child because he was 16 when I came into the relationship. So it was more guidance. It was, you know, how to ask a girl out or, hey, can I have money for the movies? It wasn't really parenting in a sense that I was involved in his, you know, every move of every day. It was more like, hey, she's the cool stepmom and I have some questions for you about girls and dating and jobs. And I got to have fun with it. I didn't have all the other nonsense that, that you would have growing up. So you were like a, a, a safe adult, I think they call them, right, in the States? A safe adult? Like the kind of adult that um, teenagers or children can talk to them without any yeah. fear of the, the adults going back to their parents and telling them whatever they're telling. You, you know, you're talking it, with them. Exactly. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I can offer him advice from my standpoint, and I can be very frank about it because I'm not the mother. You know, and, and he listens to me. He, he, most of the time, listens to my advice and it seems to work out for him. And then plus having a psychology background, you know, he'll ask me questions like, hey, you know, tell me about girls in this sense. You know, why do they do this, that, or the other? And I'm like, well, from a psychological standpoint, <laughs> here's what, you know, they do and here's how to get around that. So it's been very good. Well, I, I mean, because I, I have spoken to child-free women who come into relationships like they marry guys who have still like young children from uh, an old, like a different marriage, of course, a previous mm-hmm. marriage. And it's the whole, how much are you willing to parent? Because there's two things there. One of them is you have chosen consciously not to be a parent. And now you have like stepchildren who are young. It wasn't your case, but you know, maybe they're not toddlers, but I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 or, you know, or less twins, um, and the other thing is how how much I mean how much can you go into that quote unquote parenting or co-parenting you know because the kids have their mom the kids have their dad you're basically like uh, another adult in the equation but you're not your responsibility is not as big I guess yeah tricky it is and and I grew up with a stepfather he stepped in when I was fourteen and. He did more for me than my father has ever done in my life. In, in the short time he was in my mom's life, he ended up passing away, unfortunately. But he was a better father than my father ever was. So I think sometimes if you step into a situation where one of the parents is an absent parent or a bad parent or just a misguided parent, you end up parenting. So you have to be prepared for that. And then sometimes you enter in a situation where the ex-partner doesn't like you because they're jealous of you or what have you. So when I was you know, searching for a husband, I would ask them, do you have children? And if they said yes, I would say, do you have custody or partial custody? If they said yes, I was out. I did not want children in the house. And I was very specific about that because I didn't want to get into the dichotomy of you know, he's raising the kids and the ex-wife's calling at three o'clock in the morning, needing something and they're fighting, and he's going over there, and I'm wondering if he's cheating. And you know what? It was just, you know what? I just don't want to deal with it. So I think that's why I waited so long till I was 34 to talk about marriage, because I just wanted that portion of my life not to be affected by kids. And then once I was 34, I figured most of the guys in my age bracket either had kids that were at least 10 or somewhere in that vein, or didn't have kids at all. And the ones that didn't have kids were still waiting for Mrs. Wright to have kids, which, you know, I wasn't interested in that. And then once I met my husband and he had two, I said, you know, where are they? And he's like, well, one, I I haven't seen since birth. She took the kid, disappeared, and that was it. Okay. And then the second kid was old enough to be 
on his own. I mean, he was already 16. So he was pretty much emancipated out of the house with the car. And he moved from Florida to Colorado and did his thing. So I said, okay, I can live with that. I, I think that's, uh, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's not ideal situation, but at the same time, it's not as bad as having, like, like you said, like a, a, a kid in the house, basically. Yeah. Especially when you, when you, I mean, it's just parenting is such a big responsibility. When we were talking earlier about addictions and you were telling me a little bit, you know, about your clients and your experiences and whatnot, I always like my mind kept going back to how big that responsibility of parenting is that whatever you do in the first years of your child can affect them for life, you know? Absolutely. And my father never wanted kids. And I, I was told little on, which no one should have told me, that when my mother was pregnant with me, my father was cheating on her. And when she went to give birth in the hospital, he walked in and said, is it a boy or a girl? If it's a girl, I don't want it. And she said, it's a girl. And he said, I don't want it. I want a divorce and left. And they should never have told me that, but they told me that. So I knew growing up, I wasn't a wanted child. And that's horrible to hear, you know, your father doesn't want you because you're not a boy. Yeah. So I tried everything I could to identify. I learned how to work on cars. I learned how to do some construction work. I did everything I could to try to get my dad's attention. Of course, it didn't work. But I learned some pretty cool stuff in the process. And then I learned later on in life that no matter what I would have done, I still would not have gotten his love and approval. There's nothing I could have done. But that took therapy. And that took you know going through a whole bunch of other things. But once I did all of that, that's when I said, you know what? I really don't want to be a parent. I think I'd be a good parent, but I don't want to be a parent. And that's okay. And there's always that part of your life where people judge you. It's like somewhere between like 28 and 38. And you haven't had any kids yet. They're like, oh, you know, when is it coming? When are you doing it? And then when you start to get like 40, they kind of leave you alone. <laughs> like, all right, you know, you haven't had any. And then when I turn 42, and I'm going to be 46 this year, people just stopped asking. It's like, okay, now she's just too old to have kids. She's just going to be childless. And people are okay with it now. But it took the whole, when are you having kids? What do you mean? Is there something wrong with you? And people ask a lot of personal questions, like, what's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with me. I just don't want them. Yeah, I can. I, for me, sometimes it's just, I, it blows my mind, the, the questions that we get asked, like child-free women specifically. Mm-hmm. Not men, not so much. If a guy doesn't want to have kids by the time he's 40, that's still okay. But women, wow. And, and I don't know why people feel that they have, the, you know, they feel entitled to ask us such personal questions. Like, I'll never get that. <laughs> to be honest. I have, I have no idea. But I remember one woman said to me, don't you feel empty? And I said, no, I don't. I actually feel good. And she said, you should feel empty without kids. They are, they are your world. And I said, well, that's kind of sad. And she said, why? And I said, well, what are you going to do when they're 18 and go to college? You're going to be all alone. And then what? <laughs> you know, what's your plan? And she just looked at me and she said, They'll always love their mother. And I said, well, I don't know about that. And sure enough, when they turned 18 and left the house, she fell apart. And she had a meltdown on Facebook. And she just said, I, you know, no one loves me. No one comes over. These kids don't call. And I said, your whole life was kids. You should have done something with your life and had kids as a, you know, as an add-on, not as your entire life. Because now what? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, just listening you talk about everything that you do and, and of course, your personal point of view about this uh, child-free lifestyle has just been really inspiring. I'm very, very happy that you're here. Thanks again for your time. 
Awesome. Um, well, thank you for having me on. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you go because we are running out of time. But before I do, I want to give you the space so you can, um, you know, whatever message you want to convey to my audience, you can do it now. Sure. If you are anyone is suffering from an addiction or you just feel like talking about addiction, you guys can always look me up. I'm at CallieEstes.com or TheAddictionsCoach.com. And if you want to read my personal story, I have a book called I Married a Junkie. And it's on Amazon. And it's my story of my husband and I, him using heroin while I'm trying to run a private practice in psychology. So it's kind of a fun story, kind of a fun read with a happy ending. And you guys can always reach out. 1-800-706-0318, extension one. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to leave you guys uh, all of the links that Dr. Callias has just mentioned in the description of this episode. So you can click and go and look for her practice, her book. Uh, It's been such a pleasure having you here again. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, continue fueling your inner fire.